Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 116th season of the Empire Club of Canada. I'm Mike Van Solen. I'm the president of the Empire Club, and I'm delighted to be your host today for a virtual event to answer the question, how to make money in today's markets. We couldn't do these events if it was not for our generous sponsors. So I would like to thank our lead sponsor, the Canadian Securities Exchange. I'd also like to thank our supporting sponsor, IBK Capital. I'd like to also recognize our event partner, VVC and LiveMeeting.ca for webcasting today's event. And as always, I'd like to thank our media partner, The National Post. Today, we find ourselves in a public health crisis that has metastasized into an economic crisis. In March, we saw markets nosedive. No collapse has been as sharp or as deep. More than a trillion dollars was wiped out of the Canadian stocks, even as the Bank of Canada uh, introduced extraordinary measures and, of course, the federal government threw everything it could at the problem. In the weeks since, we've seen some parts of the market uh, begin to slowly claw their way back, uh, even as the bond markets are more pessimistic in their outlook. So who's right? The bulls and the bears can both point to evidence to make their case but for the average investor, I think it's a little, uh, it's very difficult to fully understand. That's why our expert panel was assembled today to help us talk through these issues and to share some of their thoughts about how, what they're seeing and how they're thinking about the markets. Our first guest has spent 20 years developing a deep knowledge of all things gold, silver, and platinum. Nick Bereshev is the president and CEO of BMG Group. He's an author and media personality. You may have recognized him from CBC or BNN. Uh, and as well, he was at our annual investment outlook in January. So we're glad that he is able to join us today. We are also welcoming Thomas Caldwell, the chairman of Caldwell Financial. Thomas is a leading expert in capital markets and one of the world's foremost investors in security exchanges. He is the chairman of the Canadian Securities Exchange and a past governor of the Toronto Stock Exchange. I think his insights will be valuable. Rounding out the panel is David Rosenberg. He is the founder of Rosenberg Research and Associates. David began his distinguished career on Black Monday in 1987. And since then, he has built a reputation by sensing blind spots and opportunities alike. This latest crisis would seem to validate his bearish outlook, but I'm curious to hear what he will have to say today. This will be an interactive event. We have already gathered a lot of questions from our audiences, uh, from our audience that we uh, will work into our discussion today. If you want to share further comments or questions, please feel free to send them along and we will uh, be sure to share them with our panelists uh, after this event. So I am excited to jump into this and maybe I will begin with Tom. Uh, Tom, why don't, uh, and we're going to go through all three panelists. I appreciate you being here with us. Uh, Tom, why don't you begin by offering some of your thoughts on where we find ourselves today? Well, it seems to me, I guess the question was, how do we make money in a volatile market? Well, first off, volatility is the new norm. Even before COVID hit, we have products, we have strategies and markets that enhance uh, and exacerbate volatility. That's just the, the world in which we live in. Uh, the, the key, I guess, to working with volatility is to use it, to somehow use it uh, opportunistically. 
Uh, and it's interesting right now with the market being as anxious as it is, uh, even small things can push the market off its balance. I mean, uh, yesterday, Dr. Fucci's comments that it could be as late as September or September could be too early. Uh, that was a was one of the contributing factors in knocking the market down 400 plus points. I'm sure while we're having this meeting, Dr. Fucci's at the White House getting verbally smacked across the head for saying that, but he has it made. But the key with volatility is you've got to look beyond the present. The present situation, whatever the present one is, it's about pricing, and it's influenced by all kinds of things. You know, what you want to do is look a little bit beyond that. What is you have a different time frame. Um, I'm a value investor. My partners don't let me use the word a garbage man. I look for things that have been really knocked down, beaten up, and my job is to say, is this a short-term problem? Is it a long-term problem? Is it fatal? Uh, and that's really how I have to look at it. Now, the market that we've just experienced that you outlined uh, was horrendous. Uh, we Because a market will reflect a society. And society was in the stage in, in March, oh my God, we're all going to die. This is the Black Death. Downwind markets, 30% plus, uh, depending on the company. And so, and frankly, the media and the politicians and even the so-called experts inflame that anxiety. Straight line, oh, we're going to go through hospital capacity. Uh, and, uh, oh, if you just listen to our newscast, we'll have more panelists on and we'll keep you safe. So we've gone from the Black Death to the current situation, which you, again, sort of outlined, uh, okay, we're going to get through this, but what is the economic cost going to be? When? Timing is very, very important. What is the economic price we're going to pay? So the market is reflecting that switch from total catastrophe to, well, we might get out of this, but it's still going to be pretty messy. So the market's recovered about half of that decline. So in terms of volatility, I always look at a basis, is this talk, and I'm speaking of equities here, is this equity, is it cheap relative to, say, two years from now? What is my two-year view? Now, if I look at the markets now, I've tended to stay away of late, and many of them I'm thinking of doing, from a lot of the FANG stocks, that is Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google, uh, social media, because they're at their highs, and that's where we've moved as a society. So for me, I tend to uh, want to look at things that have been sort of smacked down. I'm looking at financials. Now, the financial area, it's a mess. We've got bankruptcies coming. We've got possibly deflation. I'm looking here what David has to say about that. We're, we're, we're credit cards, uh, real estate, et cetera. So my job is to sort of look at that and say, okay, what are the positives? And I laughed the other day. I saw there was an article in the paper. One of the banks was saying we're giving $200 billion to help our, our customers. Well, and then later it's, it's deferral. They're not giving anything. It's a Giving and deferral, that's like that's an oxymoron. It's like Ottawa nightlife. They're, they're not giving us anything. So there's no giveaways here. So if I look at, the say, the financial service, just take, say, the banks, Canadian banks, and any big U.S. banks, you know, there is a cushion in there. After 08, they put cushions in for roughly 25% declines in the economy. Well, we're there. Uh, they have a tremendous diversity of revenues. Uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of financings required after all this mess is over. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, even the dividends, and particularly the Canadian banks, are probably fairly safe. There's going to be lots of mergers and acquisitions. So one of the areas I'm sort of looking at is the Canadian, major Canadian banks and some of the U.S. banks. But as an investor, I do everything on a gradualism basis. I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to know whether today is the day I buy the market, but I will work my way in and walk away. Uh, now, for risk takers looking at this market, um, I look at say, what's the worst area right now? Energy. 
It's got all kinds of problems. There's storage problems. You've got a price war, market share fight going on. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening there. But keep in mind environmental pressures as well. But remember, hydrocarbons are not going to be replaced. And there will be supply disruptions in the future. Uh, so when I look at, say, sectors, as I sort through this mess that we're looking at, what's the stuff that looks cheap? What might be survivable? And if I'm going into an industry, particularly, say, like energy, I want to look at the big companies, the big companies that have the power to take over weak companies, because it makes, it makes a lot more sense to buy oil than to go looking for it. So if I look at that, I would look at sort of the bigger energy companies, maybe a Suncor in Canada, some of the Canadian big banks and some of the U.S. big banks. So there's a way to do it, but you have to take a two-year view because none of us knows exactly when and how this is going to end. So a two-year view and gradualism, just nibble away and then walk away and keep questioning if you're right in the process. So that's how I tend to trade and how I look at markets at the present time. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, that's great, Tom. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, Nick, why don't I turn it to you to offer some of your, your, uh, your top-line thoughts? Okay. Uh, well, many experts uh, were looking at the markets before the COVID uh, issue came up and concluded that we're already in a simultaneous triple bubble in uh, equities, bonds, and real estate. Now with the economy shut down, central banks have gone into overdrive in monetary expansion. Now, many industries such as retail, restaurants, hospitality, airlines, real estate construction, energy, will have difficulty getting back to normal revenues even after the lockdown has ended. The central banks and governments around the world will be forced to print even more money in an attempt to bolster the economy. A particular problem is in pension plans that had significant unfunded liabilities before the, the COVID crisis, but they'll find their unfunded liabilities to have dramatically increased. Even the biggest pension funds that owned real estate will see dramatic declines as vacancies increase and rents are not paid. Eventually mortgages and corporate debt will default. So the importance of proper diversification will be extremely critical in the future. Great. Uh, thanks. Thanks, uh, David and uh, or Nick. And we'll, we'll come back. Uh, we'll come back. And we have a, a series of questions for, for each of you. Uh, David, why don't I turn it over to you to give some of your top line thoughts? Sure. Well, look, I'm going to say at the outset that we clearly are suffering from a very deep exogenous shock um, but you also might be shocked to know that I do believe that we're going to be having a recovery from a deep bottom. Uh, but whether it starts in the third quarter or the fourth quarter of this year, we are going to have a recovery. Uh, from my perspective, though, uh, what we can't ignore beyond what's happening now and looking at the force past the trees, which I think is important, is we can't ignore the secular changes that are coming our way, uh, changes to how people approach their cash positions, their spending, and their balance sheets. Uh, so I just want to say with that in mind, I want to bring everybody's attention to a critical report that I think that you should be reading, and it's from the San Francisco Federal Reserve, a report that was published um, just last month, and it's titled 
longer run economic consequences of pandemics. You can get it off their website, the San Fran Fed. And in a nutshell, uh, what they found and what they studied actually were the long-term effects of these major pandemics in the past. There's been 15 of them dating back to the 14th century. And I think that the major finding is very important. And that is that we see a secular shift towards greater precautionary savings. And at the same time, investment demand also tends to decline. So the impact of these great historical pandemics, if we want to learn from them in the past millennium, has been to exert lasting downward impact on what is known as the natural or neutral rate of interest. And in fact, the neutral rate of interest goes down 150 basis points typically uh, once we get through the pandemic. And this is why you can't rule out bond yields going down even more. Everybody loves to ask me, have we hit the bottom? Have we hit the bottom? Everybody asks me, have we hit the bottom? Or talking about the stock market. Nobody ever says, have we hit the bottom uh, when it comes to bond yields? But you have to understand that if the history of pandemics is such a deep shock to the supply and the demand side of the economy, and we go down on average by 150 basis points, and you're taking a look at where interest rates were going into this thing, then bond yields are going to continue to go down from their already microscopic levels. Uh, so all of a sudden, today's 1.35% yield on the 30-year Treasury could end up looking like a bargain, you know, just as it did at 2.4% at the start of the year. And what people don't tend to understand in the bond market is the importance of convexity at these low yield levels. And I don't hear anybody talking about the fact that the total return in the long bond this year is plus 25%. And I find it fascinating that when everybody is crowing about how the NASDAQ is up for the year, nobody seems to mention what the total return and long-dated treasuries have been. And then I think we have to consider what happens when we get to the other side. I'm sure we'll talk about this. Uh, you know, the massive government debts that we've built up, uh, you know, how we're going to deal with these bloated government balance sheets. Will these debts get monetized? Uh, what is tax policy going to look like uh, to defray the costs? What does it mean for corporate taxes, what's it going to mean for top marginal tax rates, because somebody is ultimately going to have to pay for all of this largesse. But what I will say with a certain degree of confidence uh, beyond government policy is what I see happening at the individual level coming out of this. Remember that economics is a study of social behavior. And months of isolation and distancing and a fear of the return of the pandemic are going to fundamentally alter our lifestyles are gonna have a profound influence, not just on the way we live, but on how we conduct ourselves in our personal and commercial lives. So when I try and tie it into what it means for how you invest, let's face it, working from home is certainly gonna be a more dominant force now and in the future that has obvious negative implications for commercial real estate, probably has positive implications for internet infrastructure, computer hardware, and video conferencing, there's going to be a sharp reduction in travel to work, travel in general. To me, this means fewer cars on the road. So all the ESG reasons to avoid energy, in my opinion, is now going to be even further accentuated. And nothing here, in my opinion, is very good news for the auto sector, not just office REITs. But look, there's going to be some bullish themes that emerge too. Uh, and as I've said, we're going to go into a prolonged period of rising savings rates where people are going to focus on what they need, not what they want. And it was very interesting, behavior speaking, to see what consumers have spent their money on in the past two months of the lockdown 
besides just canned food and toilet paper and booze, they've been buying things like garden supplies, bread makers, jigsaw puzzles, anything related to wiring up your home to become your new office has been in vogue. And I think that is also in the future. So you want to focus on what people are going to need, not what they want. That means a focus on consumer staples, not consumer discretionary. Delivery services now have become an essential. So there is a budding bull market right now, I believe, for Amazon and any business model that copies it. Uh, I could tack on grocery chains with online services come out of this as a winner. Uh, the shifting behavior that's already taking place tells me to focus on the essentials of the market. Healthcare, and I'd say even areas of big tech, have become essentials. I would argue that Microsoft's become a utility. I think you could argue that Amazon's become a utility. And I would say one could argue that even Google's become a utility. And it's apparent to me that you want to have exposure to healthcare in particular, because this clearly is an undervested area. And I think without a shadow of a doubt, is it going to become less regulated in the future, which means the political discount in the healthcare area of the stock market is going to be very alluring, in my opinion. I think there's other ways you can diversify here. I mentioned before how interest rates are going to remain low. That means you want to have emphasis on stable income in the stock market. I would say that includes multifamily REITs, industrial REITs. Uh, I think that low interest rates are going to make their stable yield more attractive. Cap rates, I think, are going to remain lower for longer. But I also like the safe yield concept around utility and utility-like firms in technology, healthcare, and pharma. And I also think that any investment strategy preparing for the new normal should emphasize that work at home, remote lifestyles, 5G, cloud computing are all going to favor big cap tech with the caveat. They have to have utility or essential characteristics. And I'm going to emphasize that the most real and tangible advancement is going to come from pharma and med tech. So I may not be bullish on the market, but you can certainly create your own index that fits the theme that I'm describing. Uh, and then I'll just finish off with, I think, one of my key investment ideas for the current state of the world, which is gold. And I will just say physical gold is a very good hedge against the instability that the extremes of deflation and inflation are going to bring, because <laughs> we're going to get both in different time frames. If there's deflation, interest rates remain low or go negative, making the opportunity cost of holding gold basically nil. And if there is inflation, gold will do well as a classic store of value. Lastly, all the central bank alchemy has led to ever increasingly unstable markets as we're seeing today, and gold is going to do well against this backdrop. In fact, I would just say that physical gold out of everything we're seeing today, probably right now is my highest conviction call. And if for any other reason, then it's a currency that is no government's liability. And its production growth is running at a pretty reliable and constant 1% annual rate. Look at the production of money supply right now around the world. It's running at 30%, I kid you not. And that already takes out the 20% growth peaks that we saw in the 1970s and 80s. So let me leave it there. And we'll enter yeah. the question period. Yeah, th thanks, David. Um, appreciate all those comments. I, I think you were talking in Nick's good ear with the, the some of those some of the word on gold. Uh, but maybe first, I'll turn it back to Tom. Um, you know, Tom, what do you think is important for investors to uh, keep in mind at this present time? 
Well, I think the main thing is to quell your emotions. And that is critical at all times, but even more so now, particularly with isolation. People suffer from amplified feelings about the future, et cetera. So quelling your emotions is absolutely key. And one of the, one of the factors in doing that is uh, recognizing the fact that there is no news now. There are There's only opinions. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, every time I turn on the uh, television here, even the business channels, it's everybody's opinion. And frankly, everyone's opinion right now is just as bad as everybody else's. So if I had to get, and, and, and all those opinions are, are now, if you particularly watch the main U.S. news outlets, they're quite partisan. Uh, so, you know, I got a kick the other day. Somebody once said, President Trump could walk on water. And if he did, CNN would report that he couldn't swim. Uh, so it's everything is skewed. Everything is sort of biased. And everybody's talking their positions. Keep in mind, there are no experts in this exercise. You know, it's a massive extrapolation of whatever the trend happens to be. But experts require studying something that existed. We're right in the middle of the battle right now. So there aren't experts. I mean, to give you an example, when, when SARS hit, that was going to be the end of the world. And all of a sudden, SARS ended. It just stopped. And it stopped because the temperature got warmer. But not one expert had predicted that. So I guess what I would say is, for individuals, investors looking at this, try to use your own brain. You know, the quarantine was put in place to buy time and cut the spread until such time as we came up with a solution. And another thing I will say, and, and again, I'm not a big fan of President Trump, but he is a he's an entrepreneur, and entrepreneurs always want to do things in a hurry. We're always, uh, uh, you know, time is not our friend. So he is pushing people, pushing people to come to a solution. We can't wait three years or five years for an antidote to this. He's, he's demanding results, and he might be rushing things. That doesn't matter. I think that pressure to get it done, get it done now, because the battle is on right now. And there is a risk-reward equation in reopening. The statistics show us who's at risk, who's not. And there's lots of pressure groups in here. Frankly, if you're in government or you're a politician, you don't want to open because there's only downside to reopening. And as far as I'm concerned, the media is still focused on the negative. So do your own thinking. Be cynical, if you will. Be questioning. Don't, don't take things at face value. And, and try to think in terms of outside of this, future opportunities. Now, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm an incurable optimist, and I'm notoriously early in markets. But I do believe equity markets are positively disposed towards what's going on. It, they want to go up it seems to me. We're going to have lots of mini scares, uh, like Dr. Fucci yesterday and perhaps uh, Chairman Powell today. We're going to have these setbacks. Uh, but the key here is take a look at your two-year view or whatever it is. Think in terms of that gradualism and don't get faked out and don't get faked in the market. Just do your nibbling, walk away, and keep questioning yourself in events. Am I right? Am I right? I ask that every morning to myself. And my wife's there to give me the proper answer. So what I'm trying to say is always see the present as a potential opportunity. And when I think it is, sift through the ashes, look at the negativity. And remember, part of the job of media is to create bargains for the rest of us. That's what would be, that would be my best advice. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, Nick, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what the implications are of printing all this money, um, Canada, U.S., and, and possibly beyond. Um, thank you. And maybe like a first quick overview, and, and I'd like to quote um, Warren Buffett's his like two rules of investing. 
And then one is don't lose money. And number two is don't forget rule number one. And that's an important thing to consider um, in today's volatile, uncertain markets. Uh, we've had a, an initial leg down where the markets declined between uh, 23 to 39% uh, to about the third week of March. Uh, they've since had a bit of a recovery and, and are now only down between uh, two, uh, two and, and uh, 14%, uh, with uh, gold up 11.9% and mining stocks 17.9%. Um, so we've had a recovery and these recoveries are typical after major declines. In 1929, after the market declined initially, by 1930, it recovered uh, by 50% before beginning a 70% further decline. So that's something to, to consider at, at this point. Uh, even Canadian banks, which are considered safe, have declined from 14 to 30%. Um, and, and while Canadian gold during the same time frame has increased by 20%, all international equity indexes have declined between 13 and 23%, whereas gold in their currencies increased from 8 to 20%. Now, one of the, the uh, typical philosophies is to maximize returns is to always stay invested. But that doesn't hold water when you look at the major market crashes. In 29, it took 27 years to break even, even before considering inflation. In 1966, it took 26 years to break even. In 2000, it took 15 years to break even. And even after the recent financial crisis, it took five years to break even. So avoiding the crashes and being in position to benefit from buying uh, highly reduced assets creates an opportunity of a lifetime. Um, this is where we've created um, a new hedge fund that initially invests in gold bullion until the crash is complete, and then reallocates to 20% gold, 10% silver, 25% REITs, 25% equities, and 20% bonds. And during the, the diversified phase, we will only be buying the best performing mutual funds over the past 10 years. Now this philosophy holds up because in the last eight corrections, equity has declined 19%, while gold increased from four to 53% during the same periods with no declines. So the strategy is to hold gold during this period of volatility and then deploy some of the grains. 
Now, in terms of where gold is going, uh, the amount of money being printed by central banks is a critical factor. And since 2009, in the U.S., debt has grown by 112%, where GDP grew by 48%. So that means for every dollar of increased debt, GDP only grew by 50 cents. Now, that's a sure path to insolvency. You can't keep that up. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, the money printing has increased dramatically. In the U.S., within three months, $2.3 trillion has been added to the debt. And this debt has been increased during a 4.8% GDP decline. And it represents the biggest decline since the financial crisis. To make matters worse, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio is on pace to surpass the previous high, which was set during World War II. In Canada, the debt has grown by $250 billion since March. However, the $2.3 trillion injected into the economy has only paid people not to work. This puts the Fed's balance sheet at a historic $6.13 trillion. However, this increase in debt did not contribute to GDP as it was paid people not to work. Central banks will need to inject a lot more money when a recovery starts after the lockdown is over. When we look at the, what, what uh, the gold price is, first of all, many people are surprised that since 2000, the gold has increased by an average of 11.4% in every currency going since 2000, 11.4%. Pension funds have been happy if they get 6%. It appreciated 18% in U.S. dollars in 2019 and 12.9% in Canadian. But this year, it has gone up 11.9% in U.S. and 20.7% in Canadian. Now that's equal to an annualized rate of 50%. Now gold has been correlated to U.S. debt since 2008 when it diverged, it's now begin, beginning to correlate again and revert to the mean where the current gold price should be about $1,900. When gold breaks through this previous high of 19, it will then be clear to go to, in my opinion, as high as 3,000 by year end. Well, nothing is certain about predicting gold prices but with the amount of money the central banks will have to create and, and as close to a certainty as one can get. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, David, maybe you could talk a little bit about whether you think inflation or deflation is, is the bigger risk today. Well, uh, I don't think there's 
any shout of a doubt <laughs> that the near term is going to be replete with with deflation. Uh, I mean, we have had a a massive detonation uh, to demand uh, globally, and that's what happens after a massive shock that we've just endured. Is the initial hit is to aggregate demand, uh, and this could easily last another year. Uh, so when you're talking to me about inflation, deflation, you have to, as an economist, focus on these two powerful curves, aggregate demand and aggregate supply. So the initial shock is on the demand curve. You saw it in the data today with U.S. producer prices, deeply negative, came off of yesterday's numbers on consumer prices, negative. And so it's going to be a deflationary shock for the foreseeable future. If you're going to talk to me about what that means, I'd say for the next year, maybe two years, we're going to be in a deflationary environment, which is why interest rates are going to remain extraordinarily low, as I said previously. Uh, but if you have a three to five year view, uh, we have to understand that at some point demand is going to stabilize. And the question becomes what happens to the supply curve? And what's going to happen here is that because there is no corporate profits to speak of for the next couple of years, there's not going to be any capital spending. Uh, there will not be capital spending. Therefore, we're not going to have productivity growth, which is already slowing down in both Canada and the United States before this crisis. And one of the things that came out of the employment numbers on Friday was the deep decline in the labor force participation rate. Everybody focuses, of course, on the employment numbers, but they don't see the carnage this is happening to the available supply of workers. And a lot of them aren't going to be coming back. So you've got this supply shock. Of course, we've got the impairment of global supply chains. One thing that comes out of this is we're going to be finding uh, that um, supply chains will become more local, especially in areas that are deemed to be of national interest. So that means the world's going to get smaller. Globalization, I'm not going to say reverses course, but it certainly is going to stall out. Uh, so that tells me that the corporate cost structure is going to be going up over time, that at some point the supply curve dynamics, the sclerotic supply curve dynamics will overtake the demand side. And we're going to end up with cost push inflation. By the way, just go back to the 1930s and the Great Depression. Uh, initial deep deflationary shock in 1930, 31, 32, in the 33, 1934, 35, 36, you had the cost push inflation. In fact, people don't realize that in the mid-1930s, inflation actually went from negative to plus 5%. Um, so I'm thinking that it's, yes, the answer is that it's both deflation and inflation, but it's deflation now for the next couple of years, but inflation is going to be following if you have a three to five year view because of the cost push or the supply side taking over. Thanks, David. Um, Tom, I'm going to come back to you. What do you think, uh, what do you think uh, a post-COVID world is going to look like uh, for investors? Well, there are going to be changes and there are going to be lots of them. The question that sticks in my mind is how long will we will we get the lessons and keep the lessons? I was thinking of the word forever. It's a word you hear quite often. You know, the world was changed forever. Forever does not exist. You know, we're going to learn lessons here, and what are they going to be? And I think the starting point is for us to look at our own lives. Uh, what are we getting through this? What are our thoughts? What are our values? What lessons are we going to keep from this? 
and and, I, and as David said, I, and it was a point I was going to make. We're going to focus more on needs than wants, and that will sooner that will mean a slower economy. Um, my parents and uh, grew up during the depression, and they were constantly concerned about debt. If you were going to buy something, you saved up for it before you bought it. The world has changed dramatically in several generations since then. So I think there'd be a little bit more of a focus on um, not running into debt as much. I just, I just think that'll be part of it. Now, whether that lesson stays for a period of time, I don't know. Governments are going to be a bigger part of our lives, make no mistake, whether it be through taxation or heaven knows what. The, 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 the governments will take powers during periods of emergency, but rarely give it all back. They always keep a portion of it. Uh, I think one of the lessons we'll learn as individuals is to save money for a rainy day. I, I just hope and pray that governments get kind of this. You know, uh, looking back, uh, you know, and David as an economist, Keynes said, run surpluses in good times and deficits in bad times. But we that got translated to deficits all the time kind of thing. And I think governments are going to start to see that the citizenry is no longer an inexhaustible taxation base. Uh, but, you know, there are going to be, there'll be books written on this. There'll be lots of stuff happening on it. I just take a look at a, at a big picture, shorter term view in that. Isolation is the word. It's the name of the game. But I look at it from a, from a company's point, a country's point of view. One of the things, uh, and, and I used to use this in larger corporate world, incidents are used to do what you want to do anyway. President Trump wants to nail China. He is going to slaughter them. He's going to come down with so many things against China. He, China is the target. So he's going to have, heaven knows what. He just started with the uh, investing constraint. But he wants to build America as self-sufficient. He wants to rebuild their manufacturing base. They want shorter supply chains. You know, bring those manufacturing jobs back home. So nationalization, isolation, jobs in America. This is going to be the November election. And it mean, if it means you got to pay $3 more for your T-shirt at Walmart, so be it. So for me, part of this, I have to focus a little bit more uh, toward the U.S. market as an investment destination, um, because frankly, uh, they have better innovation, they have better government in many ways, and they, uh, frankly, they have better corporate management in many ways. The damage to this is collateral, and it's going to be, as David quite mentioned, a global trade, which will be unfortunate because it's raised so many people out of, out of poverty. But the damaging of global trade can actually lead to instability. Uh, I think as we go forward, we're going to look at more uh, the financials of a particular company, far more fundamentals as opposed to momentum and what's happening in the market type of thing. You've got to make sure that company is going to be solvent and survive and is the dividend sustainable. Uh, I think investors will probably look for more advice. I think we're going to see more efficient companies. I mean, I look around our company. We've got a skeleton staff here in the office. But frankly, the question, and I don't want to make any of our employees feel uneasy about this, but corporate America is going to say, who and what do we need? But And there's an upside to this. It will accelerate trends that were already in place and working from home. That's a great thing for young people, if you can. It means young people don't have to pay a million and a half dollars for a side hall mutual drive uh, house in Toronto. They can live in Collingwood or, uh, or Niagara-on-the-Lake or, or Brockville and do their work and have a great quality. So there can be positives. I think... You know, one of the good things from this, and, you know, I always try to look for a positive, is that we are going to have more pandemics. Make no mistake about this. This is a dress rehearsal. And one of the things that coming from this dress rehearsal is we have to have faster responses. 
We have to, uh, the conservatism of the medical establishment has got to be the try stuff. Let's try stuff. Let's attack a problem. So the face of war, and this is a type of war, is always changing, always changing. You know, always say army is always prepared for the previous war. It's the same with societies and governments. We have to, the, the challenges we're going to face are quite different. They're not tanks rolling at us at the present. There are always opportunities from change, and that's how I look at the world. So I would suggest that we're going to look at our lives, work out the things that are important and not important to us, and possibly extrapolate that a little bit into social change in a broader sense. And through this process, I think we should try to avoid groupthink, thinking with the herd, you know, media-dominated, try to think of what is, what will be versus what is. I think that's the, the, the things that will come out of it. It'll be a different world. And, and again, I still think it's a pause in the consumerism that we've had to just look at our lives and say, hey, what's important to us? So I think there's going to be some positives coming out of this. But again, I'm an incurable optimist. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, Nick, you, you alluded uh, a bit to this in, in your last answer, but why don't you talk a little bit about where you think the price of gold is going maybe by the end of the year or beyond? Well, if it, if it keeps on the same track, uh, it should uh, soon breach 1900, which was the previous high. And, and if, if we get past the 1900 mark, uh, we're very likely to get to, um, to 3000 by the end of the year. And, and I don't see any, any signs that the, uh, central banks of the world will ease up on printing money. I think they'll have to print dramatically more money after they remove the lockdowns, uh, to get the economy back and going, uh, the next stage of the, uh, uh, the crisis is going to be real estate as commercial rents and, and uh, even residential rents default. And that can lead ultimately to mortgage default. So we, we have a, a significant problem coming up that, that will make 2008 pale in comparison as far as the real estate end is concerned. Um, and all that will, will simply you know, necessitate the printing of a lot of money. Uh, so, so for the gold price to go to three thousand is uh, as close to a sure bet as you can get. Thanks, uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Nick. Uh, people like the uh, like to hear the notion of sure bets for sure. Um, you know, one part, I suppose, David, that if you could talk about is is who ends up paying all for all these rescue missions from government. Well, look, I think that um, there's a few things that have come out of this uh, that we know. Uh, just looking at the carnage uh, in the employment data, uh, we know that it's, uh, you know, the low end, uh, the low end uh, service sector worker uh, has been hit the hardest. Uh, the unskilled, the uneducated, really the low end of the strata, they certainly, uh, you know, will not be uh, paying the price for this. So it'll be the high end. It'll be the same people that paid for the New Deal. Who paid for the New Deal in the 1930s? Who paid for the New Deal? Uh, top marginal tax rates, they went up. Corporate tax rates, they went up. I think that you can pretty well kiss the 2018 Trump tax cuts for corporations. Um, that will be reversed and quickly uh, if the uh, uh, 
White House changes hands in November, which is a good bet, not a sure bet. And there's a good bet that uh, the Senate changes hands too and flips to the Democrats. So you have to weigh that in to the political change that's probably going to happen as well. So uh, corporate tax rates go up. I think capital gains taxes are going to go up. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if dividend taxes go up and top-end marginal tax rates are going to go up. This isn't immediate. Uh, you're not going to want to, as a fiscal policymaker, raise taxes right away. But again, if you're taking a look at three, four, five years down the line, um, part of this will, will be paid for uh, by people that can afford it. Uh, what's interesting is that in the 1930s, taxes was not some dirty five-letter word. Um, but um, higher tax rates, and especially on the corporate sector uh, and on capital gains, they're going to be coming our way. Uh, the other part of this, because taxes won't fund all of it, and the government involvement and the deficit is going to be huge for the next several years. This is the thin edge of the wedge. Uh, and I think that Nick was right, that debt monetization, outright monetary printing, this is not about quantitative easing, which was never money printing. Uh, it was the creation of excess bank reserves. This will be outright debt monetization. And in fact, the best leading indicator out there from the central bank that's been around for about 500 years, which is the Bank of England, they've already started openly embarking on outright debt monetization, uh, which would take me half an hour to explain what that is. But it is outright printing of money. And I think that a lot of the debt that's being issued by governments are going to continue to get piled up on central bank balance sheets. Uh, they'll call them 100-year pandemic bonds. They will never see the light of day. Um, and at some point, that will be very inflationary. That's, again, in my longer-term view. But it's really two things. Taxes are going to go up. Prepare for it. That's three to five years. Uh, and it's going to go up in the high end and the corporate sector. But a lot of this ends up on central bank balance sheets. Thanks, David. Um, I think I'm going to end with one question uh, for each of you, kind of around the table, the, the same question. I, I like Tom's notion that you know, often armies prepare for the previous war. Um, maybe if you could think a little bit about, you know, either what would be the right lesson or a wrong lesson that investors could take in looking at this. Um, you know, what 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 would you say to folks? You know, what what's what's the, what's the right lesson or, or the wrong lesson uh, that you could derive from the situation we find ourselves in today? Uh, Tom, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, you know. Again, I'm talking my position here, so well, forgive me in advance. I mean, we're in the investment business, obviously. But for me, I've mentioned earlier, quell your emotions, uh, clarify your thoughts type of thing. Um, you know, there are times in markets when I'm actually quite brilliant. And there are times I should not be downtown by myself with more than $10 in my pocket. That's how the world works. So... I sit down and I bounce ideas off my partners, my friends, people who really know this business. I mean, this this uh, meeting today was really helpful to me, listening to, to both of your other guests, because it helps me to clarify my thoughts. I think one of the lessons is that I think it's very difficult if you're trading markets on your own in isolation. Very dangerous because you're impacted by media, your emotions, all kinds of things. So. I, I quell, I refine my ideas, I quell my emotions by bouncing them off of people. Even if I don't listen to their opinion, it helps me to, to, to focus my own thinking and get it a little bit more right than I might while I'm on my own. So I think the, the need 
uh, for advice. I think that's very important. And, and if people miss that, they're missing an opportunity and they are at risk. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Nick, Nick, from you, uh, a good lesson or a bad lesson uh, that an investor might take from the situation we find ourselves in? Well, I look at it that, that um, it's somewhat of a bad lesson because um, governments around the world walk down their economies based on inaccurate false mortality data. We've had greater mortality in previous pandemics and the economies weren't locked down. And the length of time that the economy is locked down, many businesses, many people uh, will not come back from this. Um, so I, I think it's a big mistake. The, the solution should have been more concentrated on where the problem was, which pr primarily in, in uh, nursing homes and so on. Uh, and that was a problem that was known for five years. Um, my view, it didn't require locking down the entire economy to do this. And uh, hopefully when the next pandemic comes by, we won't do this again. Thanks, Nick. Uh, David, a good lesson or, 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 or a wrong-headed lesson uh, someone might be able to take from this situation? Well, I, I think it really goes down to uh, the uh, opening remarks and in the introduction. Uh, when uh, you had said that, you know, we started off with a health crisis morphing into an economic crisis and then into a financial crisis. Uh, I think point number one is that it's very clear uh, that governments, certainly in North America, were totally unprepared, uh, were underinvested uh, in healthcare, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the infrastructure, uh, and in terms of uh, fighting future pandemics. So, uh, as uh, I think was already mentioned, that uh, you know this could be the first of several. Uh, so, underinvested in healthcare—that's uh, point number one. Uh, the second point on the economy is that, for sure, uh, this was a shutdown economy, a homebody economy. People were told to stay home. But I'm looking at statistics in the United States, and I'm mortified to have found out that over half of American households, I haven't seen Canadian data on this, but over half of American households went into this crisis, over half with not enough cash or savings or liquidity to get them through three months. Whatever happened to savings? Whatever happened to putting money in the cookie jar? And so once again, we went through a cycle uh, where cash didn't mean anything, and maybe the Fed has something to do with that. And another cycle that was all about asset inflation, debt accumulation, we don't need savings. Uh, you know, we went into this with a 3.5% unemployment rate. And according to Donald Trump, the best jobs boom of all time and yet over half the households didn't have enough liquidity to get past three months, and now they need to have Uncle Sam's generosity to keep them intact. And, of course, we need that just to preserve social stability. And then we get to the financial part of this, because I don't know anybody that was talking about a health crisis morphing into an economic crisis that the financial crisis part of this thing would be 10 times worse than 08 and 09. Are you kidding me? Uh, and that the Fed... Never mind treasuries and mortgages, which was the controversial QE. QE was controversial in 08 and 09. Now, all of a sudden, they're going into CMBS. They're going to investment grade. And, of course, now they're going into high-yield ETFs. 
who who would have thought that the Fed would have done more in two months than they did on all the 18 months in the great financial crisis by multiples? So how did this become? How did this become such an intense financial crisis? Is because yet again another cycle where leverage is just being piled onto leverage, and they're still doing it. You're asking about the lessons we don't learn. I couldn't believe Jay Powell today saying that there was never an inflation problem this cycle. Maybe, maybe not a consumer price inflation problem because there's structural reasons why inflation has been going down, but there was, certainly was a massive asset inflation cycle. And then we had a massive corporate debt cycle this time around. Corporate debt issue to buy back stock. So I would say the lesson learned is maybe we all have to become a little more frugal, little focus on on savings and less on conspicuous consumption and get the financial house in order. By the way, I don't just mean in the federal government sector. Look at what households and business in Canada look like throughout this last cycle. So there's the lesson here going forward, which is that we're going to have to spend more time counting our pennies and focusing on our balance sheet quality and our liquidity in the personal sector and in the corporate sector, maybe a little more time spent on balance sheets and on something called working capital. Perfect. Uh, thanks, David. I am now going to turn it over to our, our lead sponsor, uh, Richard Carlton from the Canadian Securities Exchange. He's also an Empire Club director. Uh, Richard, uh, over to you to offer appreciation to our panelists. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, it wouldn't be a uh, group video if it wasn't interrupted uh, by a cat. Uh, this time, uh, David Rosenberg uh, gets the, uh, he had no idea, but his cat was wandering around behind him there at one point. Uh, <laughs> Doing thumbs down. <laughs> so nice, nice human touch. But uh, again, uh, we are grateful uh, that uh, David, Nick, and uh, Tom could uh, join us uh, here this afternoon to uh, share their, uh, their viewpoints and their, and their wisdom. Uh, as you mentioned at the outset, Mike, uh, Nick and David uh, both uh, had the courage to stand up in January and uh, give their annual outlook. And uh, I felt it would be appropriate to have them come back uh, uh, and have a COVID do-over, as it were. Um, and uh, because I don't recall either one of them predicting a global pandemic and a uh, health crisis, uh, uh, economic crisis and financial crisis, uh, um, at least uh, in, in Nick's case, not right away. Um, in any event, uh, on behalf of the Empire Club, uh, the Canadian Securities Exchange, and uh, the rest of the crew, uh, thank you very much again, gentlemen, uh, for, for, for joining us. Always insightful, entertaining, and uh, highly educational. Thank you very kindly. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much, Richard. Uh, to everyone watching, thanks thanks for taking some time to tune in today. We do have other events coming up. Look at our website. Uh, we, of course, in, in the reality for the Empire Club is it, it, we're doing these events virtually. I hope you're enjoying them. Uh, today's discussion was particularly insightful. Thanks so much. This meeting is adjourned. Thank you.